With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. In our first health panel, back on November the 2nd, we discussed policy failures and the key challenges ahead in resetting our public health system. It was a good listen, featuring public health professional Grant Schofield, sociologist Jody Brunning and Health Forum NZ's Linda Wharton. And if you want to hear that, you can replay it from our website or app. In this follow-up panel, we'll be discussing clinical performance, wait time, staffing shortages, practitioner workload and more. The nuts and bolts, I guess, of why we have seen such a significant decline in overall health system performance with worsening future trends. So on our panel, I want to welcome Professor Frank Frizzell. Frank is Professor of Colorectal Surgery at the University of Otago Christchurch, Colorectal Surgeon at Christchurch Hospital with Canterbury DHB and Editor-in-Chief of the New Zealand Medical Journal. He trained in general surgery in New Zealand before undertaking post-fellowship training in colorectal surgery at Mayo Clinic and in Scotland. He returned to New Zealand in '96 as a senior lecturer in surgery at the University of Otago Christchurch before being appointed Professor of Colorectal Surgery in 2000, becoming head of the Academic Department of Surgery in January 2006. Frank relinquished this role in 2019 after 13 years as uh, head of department, HOD, and became convener of the trainee intern surgery module for sixth-year medical students. And he's been, I'm sure you picked that up, editor-in-chief of the New Zealand Medical Journal since 2002. He's published over 400 publications in peer-reviewed journals and given more than 250 presentations at national and international meetings. Frank, that's quite an intro. Welcome to our panel. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Then I want to welcome Dr. Lee Willoughby. That name should be familiar to you by now. Uh, Lee trained in medicine in the UK, qualified in 96. She then trained in internal medicine, emergency medicine, and critical care before choosing to specialize in anesthesia. After a further eight years of training in anesthesia and a further eight years as consultant at Salford Royal Hospital, she moved to New Zealand with her husband and two daughters. She's currently practicing part-time as a consultant in anesthesia and used to be head of department of anesthesia at Gisborne Hospital. You probably heard the interview that Peter Williams did with her, uh, I think only a week or so ago. Lee also gained a postgraduate research degree that investigated how inflammation damages our bodies at a cellular level, the root cause of most diseases. Her knowledge as an anesthesiast gives her a high-level understanding of conventional medicine, and combined with her research and knowledge of functional medicine, this gives her a unique insight into the workings of the human body. She has particular interest in chronic pain, cognitive decline, cardiometabolic disease, and autoimmunity. She also has an interest in children's health, particularly in resolving autism spectrum disorders. Lee, thank you for coming on our panel today. Thanks, Paul. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And Deborah Cunliffe, you've probably heard her before on RCR as well. She is president of the Nurses Professional Association, a registered trade union and professional nurses association. A nurse for 40 years, Deborah has worked in both UK and NZ in both private and public settings. Prior to the New Zealand COVID-19 mandates, Deborah was a clinical nurse specialist in diabetes, mainly managing children and adolescents with type 1 diabetes. 
Deborah has extensive experience in governance, having served on a hospital board and not-for-profit non-government organisations. And Deborah, great to have you back at RCR. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay, now that I've got all the bio and the formalities and the introductions out of the way, uh, before we start talking about the meat of things, I just want to go around our panellists with this simple question. Professor Frank Frizzell, what is the most pressing issue in the health system right now, from your view? Uh, finding some way of giving patients better access to health professionals. Simple as that. Yeah. Lee? Um, kind of on the same vein, I'd say that uh, the biggest restriction at the moment is workforce, is actually having sufficient people on the ground to make those timetables tick over so that we can see as many as, as possible. And Deborah? Yeah, I think my answer was very similar about access and equity. Um, I do think that, um, we're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. The health service is sick. Um, but to me, we need a universal health care that's free at points of, of um, inception. And that means free everything. And we don't have that at the moment. So we're not, um, we've got a lot of issues that need discussing. The last panel we had, it was kind of agreed in a way, um, if not um, uh, really obviously, but through the discussion and the points that were brought up, that we it was more that we had a sickness system, not a health system. Is that fair? Well, if you're arguing that we treat sick people uh, as opposed to supporting people to stay well, mm. yes. Um, however, one would have to... Yeah, we're, we're the ambulance at the end of the cliff, um, not the fence at the top. And I think that's the structure of the health system in most countries, and it relates to resources. But getting back to the, your, your premise, yes. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with that entirely. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not um, equipping people with knowledge or um, um, the resources to to address their health issues at home before they get sick. You know, prevention. Um, it's the, the the whole system isn't geared up for that. It's it's geared for geared for sort of dealing with crises. Yeah. Mm. Deborah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. I think um, across the world we're seeing this, aren't we? The health systems, similar to the one we've got here in New Zealand, there are issues, things aren't working. It's time to take stock and address and, you know, find a system that would work better and be more beneficial and incorporate some of the health trends and the alternative holistic practices that we have seen over the last few years come into the fore. And again, you know, back to what I said before about making these free and more accessible, I'm aware it costs money, you know, and therein lies the another question, how do we fund a better health service? Okay, I want to get into some of your talking oh, points. Oh, no, go, Frank. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit more to your question. The real measures that, that improve society health across the whole community are really sort of simple things like, you know, clean water, nutrition, education, particularly education of women. Um, these are the things when you look at a society that have made the biggest difference to health, being, being healthy, um, not so much having a hospital. Um, you know, the hospital and the health system deals with when 
when the inevitable failure, which will happen to all of us, happens. So, but the societal structure, which government has a large part, to, you know, really it's a key issue for government, is what keeps people healthy. You know, water, food, education. We can all agree on that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the question would be, why are these things not laboured upon? You know, where is our health promotion and our health education plan? And even just reading through the latest Empty Factor Water report, you know, it talks about they've amalgamated, I think it's 12 um, public health um, functions or, or groups of people to manage this. But again, it's focusing on minorities. Well, what you've just said, um, Dr. Frizzell should be that everybody should be receiving information and access about health promotion, about clean water, de-stressing, healthy exercise, losing weight, because all those things will feed into reducing the inequity and lack of access we've got further along the system. So it should be open to everybody and it should start at school. We should be teaching our school children about healthy lifestyles and alternatives and you know how to look after themselves. We're not. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point, Deborah, um, and I I saw the mentions of that in the report you're talking about as well. Um, talking about disabled Pacifica and Maori people as the ones who are missing out, um, and that if there was better access to the health system, which is not kind of a health system, that have better health. But surely the better health comes before you turn up at the health system, just like Peter was saying, right? Yeah, I think we're in. We're needing to be focusing more on building community-based services because community is the thing that's lacking. Um, people's focus on um, digital technologies, um, fragmentation of families now, um, um, you know, difficult access to primary care services because they're being either refused or... Um, um, you know, that a lot of doctors aren't taking on new patients. Um, that that community-based um, support, which prevents social isolation, um, which is one of the biggest killers beyond smoking and all of those things, creating services around um, patients, their families and the community is going to be you know, paramount in, you know, if we're going to build a, a decent service. No, just comment on the on that um, your your uh, party message that about the IT and um, using that for providing care. One of the issues is that the, if you take use an equity lens on this, the very people that need the most help are the people who have the least access to the internet, uh, least access to IT support, and able to make it work. So um, it is challenging to know how to bridge that. Um, and sometimes also the cultural difference between talking to someone on IT, for me it's not a big deal, but for many people uh, of a different slightly cultural uh, background, it can be, it can lose its effect. So not only is it difficult for them to get that access, but the impact is much better face to face, and that. So it's not a it's not a simple one one sort of thing for everyone. It's very much we need a quite a bit more nuanced response than yeah. than that. But for a lot of people, um, internet's great, but they tend to be more affluent white people who both have it. Mind you, everyone's got a phone, Frank. 
Uh, yeah, and they're all connected they to the internet. Have, they may not have a lot of access time on their phone. I, 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 I guess it's what you choose I, to do on your phone. But yeah, yeah I think I think um, I agree. Access to services, access to information and services is really important, especially for those who are disadvantaged, either because they're they're not of that age, or you know because they've not come through this the techno technological changes, um, or because of um, their socioeconomic circumstances. Um, that you know that's that is a really big deal. But I was kind of thinking about social connection being disrupted by um, the reliance on devices, especially in young in in the young population, that they're not this they're not engaging with the community in the same way that they were, um, you know, in fifty years ago. And that's really important for their role modeling and all of that kind of thing that 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 drives you know sort of behaviours around health. I think what you said is importantly about the social economic circumstances, but this comes down to, so at the moment we've got anecdotal evidence of people being able to get a GP appointment for several months. Um, and But the issue is that a lot of people can't even afford to go to a GP. So that's, you know, even more of a pressing issue from my perspective than have they got a phone, can they access a GP on the phone? Because you've still got to pay even if you do or not a phone consult. So it's a fact that GP services, ambulance services generally are not free. And that will discriminate against those people that are purely off from social and an economic perspective. But, you know, so those are some of the questions that I would like to see answered by this new government. You know, if we're going to offer universal healthcare and if we're going to reduce inequity and discrimination, then why are we charging people to see a GP or sending them 3D, which is already obstructed and not meeting the target with six hour wait? So that's a really good starting point for addressing, you know, people don't go to the GP, so they end up seeing people like Frank, but it's too late because they haven't gone to the GP and by the time they get a hospital referral, conditions deteriorated and they become unwell. Again, back to inequity around GP access and primary healthcare access. So from my you know, there's got to be, like in any sickness, there's a starting point. And in this system, the starting point to me has to be primary healthcare. We need more money. We, we need some kind of assessment around people who can't afford to access services. What are we going to do? What are the answers? Frank, I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. Obviously, as a secondary care practitioner, what, what's your thoughts about primary healthcare and what we can do to improve access? I'm probably not the person to comment too much on primary care because that's not where I work. As you rightly imply, I'm a secondary care person. But from talking to general practitioners, both uh, you know through my job and and privately, there's just a shortage of GPs. They can't have a holiday because they can't get a locum. They they can't um, if someone retires. There's no there's, there's no one around out there wanting one to buy the practice or to even work in the practice. Um, we're really short at that point. Uh, you know, some of this is highly predictable. You know, we I mean, fourteen hundred to fifteen hundred doctors, new doctors a year, just to feed in those who die and retire. Um, and that's not trying to grow the workforce; that's trying to maintain the workforce. We only train six hundred to six fifty a year, so every year we require roughly about 800 new doctors from overseas to magic up uh, just to maintain where we are. And when we've had two years of COVID, uh, effectively, that we, there weren't any imports um, 
And that's a problem. Now we're competing on a much uh, on a much more competitive world, world market. You know, we, we sell our lifestyle, the ability to that we've got mountains and rivers and all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you got to compete with Australia with his beaches and surf and three times the money. Um, three times the money. <laughs> okay. Well, um, let, let's. Well, let's nail down some specific areas now, and, and we're on to it already. The workforce. Um, you mentioned that number trained, Frank, just a moment ago, of doctors, and there'll be plenty of other people in the workforce too that um, maybe don't come up to the numbers that we should be training and, and outputting and having in the workforce. Could we train more? What what What's the handbrake there? What's stopping us training, you know, the Kiwis, let's say, that we need to do these jobs? Because... I'm sure there, there are plenty of people interested in medicine, are there? Yeah, well, Paul, you, you, you've, you're quite right in your lead into that question. We're, we're not just short doctors, we're short, desperately short nurses, we're short of, of all allied health professionals, uh, pharmacists, we're, we're short of uh, anaesthetic technicians, you name it, we haven't got enough. And um, also, when... The normal sort of thing for most health professionals right across the spectrum is that you train when you're young, you work for a year or two, you get competent, travel overseas, as most Kiwis do for a few years, gain some experience, and then, like elephants, you come home. Um, and then that's where you spend the rest of your life. You don't forget. <laughs> yes. But that, that cycle is not unusual. Um, and so we're at the moment, people who haven't been able to go have gone. And there's a lot of people that have just dis young people that have disappeared. So we have an issue at all three things: we, about training, about retention, and uh, and about really competitiveness. We are how we are in the in the world market, and we we don't train enough. We can't retain, and and we're not competitive in the world market. So it's a, it's not one thing in alone. It's it's across those three aspects that make a workforce. So coming back to your specific question, which is about training, yes, we could train more. The the difficulty with, with uh, medicine, we're talking just about medicine, not nursing, because it's not my expertise area, and we have someone else who knows way more than that about here on the panel, um, is that we train roughly about 320 to 350 in the two medical schools, and, and med the medical schools scatter their students around other places, so Auckland, Pills, Waikato, Dapongarei, out to Rotorua, Tauranga, places like that, so Nuplamath. Dunedin uses Christchurch, Timaru, Southland, Wellington, Palmerston North, Wairapa to spread its students out. So could we increase the number of students? To a point. But we also, if we look at what other countries have done, this is not the first time this problem has arisen. Um, if we consider what the UK did, they developed a, a system where they were trying to get people to train as general practitioners to use and have changed it to a GP training base system. So I went up and had a look at the system in Inverness. You know, they trained about 80 people a year there and they're mainly general practice trained. So that when they finish their training, they their, their work experience has been in general practice, and that's what they can't, how they think. When you train someone in secondary care and then you tell them at the end of working in hospital to go out and be a general practitioner, that's not what they've seen. That's not been their experience. So it's very hard for them to cut the umbilical cord and drift off into general practice. It, it's not... It's not 
what they're familiar with. So changing the way we train people will encourage people to go into general practice. And I'm not saying we do this across all the, the two schools. We do it in parts to as necessary. So the suggestion about Waikato having a rural-based training program and um, is, is a good idea that because we, we do need another medical school. You know, Australia's got 17 medical schools. We've got two. It doesn't kind of work out. Um, so I think we, we could train more, uh, we should train more, and but we it's not just saying increasing the numbers, it's actually the structure of how we train and and the way we do it's really critical. Uh, so it's not a it's, it's not straightforward. The other thing we could do in the short term is actually negotiate with Australia to take some more students because most of those private medical schools uh, would take, I'm sure, like we used to, take overseas students if they could be funded by the New Zealand government. There's no reason why we couldn't have another 100 students over Australia mm. in the next season, uh, next education um, cycle. Because if you start to get a medical school here, the earliest it will happen is two to three years and then it will be another five years before you get a graduate. If you get people into another system and while this is transitioning, we may well have an extra, you know, 10 years, an extra 100 students um, trained in Australia. If we, as long as you bonded them to come back, you, you could have another 1,000 doctors out of that. But these things are, uh, you know, someone needs to think differently about it, not just try and do the same. But, but that's not rocket science, though, Frank. I mean, that's pretty... Pretty obvious. Okay, I wasn't thinking about it before you mentioned it, but I can see that for anyone in the know, that would be a kind of um, the first thing you'd think of. It seems to be a national priority, uh, the capacity of our health workforce. That's one crucial area of, of it. How come people sit around and, and don't move? Just curious. What do you think? It's a bit like that Ford ad, you know, the uh, ad for the Ford cars. I, I hope I'm not I hope I can say that here. You know, where the guy says if you ask people what they want, they just want a faster horse. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, and that's what we've got now. People just want to put more students through the same system as opposed to change the system. Okay, on the nursing front, Deborah, um, all we hear is that um, there's a huge shortage of nurses. Mm. And and there's probably multiple reasons for that, and we've been through a pretty bad period just recently, and that might have something to do with it. But mm. we've got a long history in this country of training nurses, um, you know, for decades and decades and decades ago, nothing new for us. How come we're struggling there? Is it pay? Is it something, is it a job that, well, young women particularly, I guess, perceived now as not really something they want to do in this world anymore. How do we explain that? I think it's multifaceted, Paul. I think Dipati War in their latest annual report acknowledged that despite workforce numbers having grown over the past decade, they haven't grown enough, and this is medical and in nursing. And, of course, it leaves the workforce under strain and stress and overwhelmed. And so, obviously, we get um, people leaving because it's, just too big of a problem for them to deal with. But like Frank alluded to as well, the way the workforce is supported also needs to improve. So for us, from a, um, a union perspective, it's recruitment, retention and support during employment. So there's issues around that. And we've known for over a decade that we've got the ageing silver tsunami of nurses that are going to be um, leaving, probably up to 50% of nurses leaving the workforce around 2030, 2035. Um, 
So add that on to the current four to five thousand deficit we've got now. We are it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse unless there is a system reset. And for me, it's an overhaul of a system to look at what worked well elsewhere, what are the models there are, what we can, how we can do things differently. Um, and it's not just about, like I said before, about recruitment. It's about retention. It's about supporting nurses in the workplace, making it safe, reducing violence, reducing bullying, allowing nurses to be critical thinkers, allowing nurses to work according to their code of conduct. Um, what we do know is there's probably about seven, just over 74,500 nurses registered on the registry in New Zealand, but not all those are working. Um, and we also know that over the last quarter, so that was from June to November, um, there's probably just over um, 32,300 work for us. that's the biggest workforce. And but, but the question is, where are these nurses coming from? And so some of the main issues from a nursing workforce perspective are around the ageing workforce. There were around internationally qualified nurses that were bringing in who filled the gap. And as of the last quarter, 86% of nurses, new nurses registered in New Zealand were overseas nurses. Now that's great. And a lot of these nurses are wonderful. They're really good at what they do. But we do know that it isn't always easy for nurses from overseas to adapt to a Kiwi way of doing things, understanding and adapting to a new culture and language can be hard. And what we do know from our anecdotal evidence is that up to 50% of them come, do some work here, and then, like Frank alluded to, nip off to Australia, better yeah. pay, better conditions. But they, they were hoping to get there eventually anyway, kind of thing. Like, Possibly, very possibly. Um, we know there's a worldwide demand for nurses. And from, from a New Zealand perspective, the country of origin of IQNs, as we call them, has changed significantly over the last few years. So we, we need to look at how we can better um, integrate these nurses into the New Zealand health system and how we can supplement New Zealand-trained nurses. Now, this, as you said, Paul, isn't a new thing. And, and our... Um, one of our projects is, you know, we're, we're pouring money into these CAP programs for overseas nurses. And I think there was some data floating around that $10,000 per nurse was being offered. Now, our question is, why can't we have more homegrown nurses and have them sufficiently supported financially who train without coming out with huge debt and to stay in New Zealand? And if you, and Paddy Gower recently did a program about this with how we, Paddy Gower's got issues. It was actually really good because it raised quite a few issues around mature nurses not being able to train locally, mature nurses having to hold down a job as well as training and doing their um, secondments and work experiences and not getting paid. So we've got a bit of work to do around this. You know, why are we not recruiting Kiwi nurses? Why are we not um, sustaining Kiwi nurses going forward? And, um, you know, why are we not getting um, appropriate qualifications and competency in New Zealand when we could be putting money into this and getting nurses that are Maori, that are Pacific Island, that understand the inequity that we've discussed and can work with people without having to go through extensive training programmes to bring them up to date with our culture. I think our reliance on the overseas nurses is likely to create a nursing workforce that does not reflect the ethnic makeup of the population. And that isn't just a, a Deborah principle that is something the nursing council have also identified as a problem right. yeah. so you know we we need a strategy that's going to maintain and improve the nurse population ratio to meet the health demands of an increasing and aging sick population which is what we are dealing with in new zealand
Well, we spent half a billion on rat tests and that would have gone a long way. But anyway, it's another story. Um, Lee, you say that recruitment is broken, um, delivered by incompetent and indifferent human resources staff who are ignorant of the roles required within the service. Well, that doesn't sound like a great environment to kick off uh, a career in the health system. Um, no, that sounds like reading it back, it sounds uh, quite severe and, and harsh, but um, certainly from what I have seen since I've been in New Zealand, I came here in 2016, um, I have seen a, just um, a litany of problems with the recruitment process. Um, I obviously didn't really have much to do with recruitment in my first few, oh, excuse me, sorry. That's all right. I've silenced my phone, but I can't yeah. silence my They'll phone. They'll call back if it's, Sorry if about it's that. important. Yeah, I'm sure it um, is. Yeah, so I, I, um, I, didn't, I wasn't really involved in recruitment initially, um, but it was when I became head of department that it became really obvious that there were some huge deficiencies in our ability to, to, to recruit. Um, some of those were very much local issues, but um, what I couldn't understand is that the, the 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 staff that are in those roles that are primarily tasked with um, selecting or at least um, getting information from um, uh, specialists, nurses, allied health professionals, um, and uh, feeding them into that recruitment process within an organisation. They um, largely the exposure I've had has shown me that, that that they have no, they've had no training in healthcare recruitment, and they don't have the knowledge about, say, for instance, um, you know, an emergency medicine specialist is entirely different from an anaesthetist or from a colorectal surgeon, or you know that they don't seem to have the knowledge of what what those specialties are and i've seen problems where you know just the shit just the nuts and bolts of advertising for instance the adverts have gone out under the wrong dhb or they've advertised for a job in anesthesia and put emergency medicine specialist in the advert right. and then when it comes to the actual nuts and bolts of the processes they, they, um, there's long, 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 long time frames before all those checks and balances are, uh, you know, occurring. And um, certainly from a regional perspective where we've been, um, you know, you can't afford to sit on your laurels when you're trying to recruit good people. And what I've seen is that, 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 that you know, the people aren't being put through that process quickly enough and that we're losing people to other areas or Australia because it's not a professional and timely process. Right. And when yep. you come from Chicago or, um, you know, where the, the you know, the um, competition is huge and, um, you know, they're, they're dealing with huge workforces, you, you know, they're used to something that's going bang, 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 you know, like, you're doing, you know, you're, you're putting your CV and your yeah. um, your details in, and it, it happens in a really quick time frame. Um, so we've we've lost multiple in 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 my um, you know previous DHB lost multiple people from the process. I mean, by the time you get to interview them, they've already accepted a job somewhere else. Right. And okay, that's that's really uh, you know incredibly frustrating. Um, so yeah, I, 
I know that I, I've named it incompetence. I mean, lack of training, whatever that might be. It's not yeah. a personal yeah. thing against those people. It's just that there simply isn't the machinery and the checks and the the throughput um, to allow people. Isn't to this though all obvious? People. Isn't this like, obvious? Uh, isn't all this obvious? You, you, yeah. You, you know, um, you don't have to to have any special knowledge to to get that. Um, it sounds pretty lazy. Is that a good word to use? A, a, it's kind of lazy, sort of. Oh well, you know, she'll be right. Don't need to hurry too much. You know, people love to come here. We should be okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think there's only so much lifestyle that can compensate for a poor working environment. So, you know, that a lot of the jobs are advertised and 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 now, you know, we really um sort of um got very, very discerning about what was written about the job because a lot of the time it was being written, oh, come and enjoy the sea, you know, it's the surfing community and come and enjoy our wonderful wine and food. And yes, those things are great, but ultimately these people are coming for a a role. Yeah. And so changing the wording around what what what's expected of that role and how you would be you know sort of um supported within a, a you know a good team environment within that department and promoting the actual aspects of the job um is is way way more important than saying oh well in the in your spare time you can do go-karting or sure thing, whatever that yeah. might be yeah <laughs> yeah go-karting i always wanted to do that <laughs> just it, came into my head then i don't know why <laughs> I get it. Um, we've talked already about, uh, you know, the primary care part, GPs, the number of uh, GPs or, or doctors trained who become GPs, et cetera. Let's talk about secondary care. I want to go back to you, Frank, because that's your your zone. Um, if we had a health system that was delivering healthy people, we wouldn't have burgeoning waiting lists, would we? Yeah, so you can kind of expect it to be a bit of pressure at the moment because for you know two and a half years we told everyone not to go to their doctor, um, and so it's hard. Was that a mistake? Uh, I think it was a. The concept of protecting the workforce was was not a bad idea, but the ability to work out uh, and adapt to on, the constant change would have been helpful, as opposed to just keeping one the, the same policy all the way through. Right. I think if we learned to live with COVID a bit more, uh, earlier relief. And also, the, the really thing that annoys me most of all, we had two and a half years of people telling, you know, talking about vaccination, everything else. Behind that, there was no one actually doing anything about the inevitable rush that was going to happen afterwards. There should have been a bigger group planning ahead than, than, than you know, putting up a wall. Um, yeah. New Zealand, again, that, that's obvious, though, again, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Look, New Zealand was in a perfect place. We're a long way from anywhere. We've got an easy drawbridge to pull up, um, and we could see it coming. So it was hardly a surprise we did well. Um, it's, you know, and we have a compliant country. You know, when, you know, if you look at the percentage of got vaccinated compared to lots of other countries, it, it happened. You know, you're not going to get 100%, but we're definitely, on the whole, people tended to get on board. And, they did what they were told. Yeah, so, so that saying wasn't a difficult problem to get to end up ahead of most of the world. The the reality is, though, that um, there was a lack of planning about what happens as, as the tide goes out. 
And what we've ended up with is that a lot of the population have got no clothes on, effectively, as the, as the tide's gone out. And we've got this this cohort of people who are presenting late with their advanced cancers that have got um, benign diseases, everything from joint replacements to, you know, hernias to everything else that hasn't been treated. Um, that, that's the problem. And this is inevitably going to dump into the public system now. The public system has turned up the criteria to get seen. So that's one way of doing it is just deny care um, and increase unmet need. And that's, you know, that's been the typical public hospital system. While if you were treated, seen in, in 2019 with a riding or hernia and you're working otherwise fit and well, you would have got seen and probably operated on within four months. Today, you're probably not going to get seen and you're definitely not going to get operated on um, in any foreseeable time. So th that adjustment alters the, the you know, the, Declining people before the scene by the uh, you know, by the by the the uh, surgeon means that they're not actually on the waiting list to be seen and they're not on the waiting list to operating. So the lot this is not comparing apples of oranges when we look at the waiting list now to what there was before. Right. So we're definitely much more selective about what is seen and what and who we treat because we just don't have the resources. Okay, can we get our arms around then? the uh, percentage, I guess, of those who might need to be part of interfacing with the health system who um, are being prioritised out of that at the moment because it's just the capacity isn't there. Uh, have we any idea of the scale of that, do you think? No, we have no concept of our met need in community. And there's been, basically, there's been a proposal repeatedly put to the previous government um, and declined to assess unmet need prior to the end of COVID. And there's been a lot of effort gone in to try and convince them that this is something that needs to be done. And uh, unfortunately, it has just been repeatedly declined uh, to, to meet this. And it's really critical to be able to plan ahead is to know what your need is. How can, how can you deliver a service if you don't know what needs to be done? It sounds really simple, but the moment we don't have that information and it's 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 core to, to planning what you what you're going to provide is to work out what you need to you know where is the demand deborah have you got anything more to say about i think um it was just uh, brought up there about the COVID 19 response and the impact that's had on where we find ourselves now yeah, I think the, the COVID-19 response features highly in the Tifatawara report, which has just come out at the beginning of November. And, and basically, it reports against health system indicators, aka how well we're doing. And like Frank says, we're not comparing apples with oranges. Now, to me, I've had a, I've had a, I'm not a statistician or a health economist or anything, but I've had a good look through the report, um, which... Any organisation presenting their first report is going to prevent, uh, present something sparkling, something that looks good, but it doesn't drill down into the core issues and does keep mentioning the COVID response and the um, understaffed, underfunded workforce, but it doesn't deal with the issues. In fact, in some ways, the report reads very much like a well-penned letter to a favouring auntie, whereby it lists the achievements, the perceived challenges, and even gives a nod to some of the things that could be better managed. But in reality, the cousins on the street anecdotally report a different story. Doctors in um, secondary care, primary health care, are reporting a different story to what the Tifatu or a report is telling us. We've got that classic spin doctrine around what we've done and how good we are, but not addressing the core issues, especially in relation to 
the nursing workforce and um, poor care, unsafe staffing levels. You know, we've got stories of doctors and nurses in tears because they're unable to fulfil their duties effectively. You know, clinicians going without breaks, physical violence in um, primary health care and in hospitals where patients are getting frustrated and physically threatening violence towards clinicians. We've got full mental health units, you know, and I have not led a, and none of us here have ever led an 85,000 staff um, organisation, so we don't know all the challenges, but we do see examples of poor leadership when we see patients having to be transferred to hospital in a car because there's no ambulances available to take them to hospital, when um, community nursing referrals are being declined because there's no scope to see patients by district nurses in the community. So there is a system in failure here. In, and, you know, is this just due to what happened during COVID? Probably not. You know, I've been worked here and in the UK and I've been through so many different health system changes and new ways of doing things. And, you know, I can see that what's happening here with the um, inauguration of Etifatawara um, in July 2022, when it was established under the Healthy Futures Act. You know, is this just another attempt to try to um, pull back some control and make sense of what's happening? But when we look internationally, it's probably not going to work until we start addressing some of the key issues. And like Frank said, one of those is looking back and asking the right questions and getting the answers to those questions. And we're not getting that. And, and with response to your um, you know, mention about COVID call, obviously one of the things that we've campaigned on historically over the last three years has been the fact that we've got hundreds of nurses, midwives and carers that were brutally mandated and sacked under the COVID mandates. And many of them are still out of work, not because they can't go back, but because they just feel absolutely broken by a system and they don't have the attraction isn't there to go back because if they've been checked like this once, what's going to happen again in the future? So there are concerns that how things happened and worked out during the COVID-19 narrative on helping the current issues that the system's facing. So it's multifaceted. And I think we've said that all the way through that these issues are not new, but they've not been helped by COVID, by increasing sickness and issues that the government isn't dealing with. And then obviously um, by a, a depletion of the nursing workforce naturally because of the mandates. Haven't we got then the worst of all worlds? Lee, I want you to um, comment on this particularly, that is what um, Deborah, Frank and yourself have been saying about capacity, you know, training, um, the pent-up demand, so on and so forth. Okay, that's not good. But also, as Deborah has been um, uh, telling us just a moment ago, in nurses there is now a distrust, right? There's a distrust of of that system and the uh, uh, the operators of that system because look what happened to them. Also, I think it's fair to say that amongst many of us, and I count myself as one, there has been a shattering of trust in 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 medicine, in in medical, whatever you want to call it, in the in the establishment, because because of what's happened. Now we all know what's happened, but that's the worst of all worlds, isn't it? You've got a mistrust, a major trust problem in the system at the same time as you've got a system that doesn't have the capacity to deal with what's in front of it. That's the worst of all worlds, isn't it? 
Totally. Um, I mean, I just, um, Deborah's already alluded to the fact that the culture of, of healthcare, certainly I don't have a perspective from primary care, but from secondary care, the culture within organisations was um, in a dire state before COVID hit. Um, so, you know, in terms of we're talking about trust from outside coming in, but, the you know, you can only give of yourself and give, deliver quality health care if you feel valued and, and you feel like you trust your colleagues and your environment and that the organisation has your best interests at heart. Um, you know, that I've done a lot of safety work in my career, especially in the UK around surgical safety. And there's... You know, I remember a very important piece of work that I read. Um, there's, there's, there's kind of three components to having a safe, reliable delivery of healthcare for people. And, and the first is organizational fairness. And that's being, you know, that's being affected by practices and behaviors within organizations. So the organization isn't necessarily fair. And then you've got psychological safety. Psychological safety is the you know it's the it's it's utterly critical to having a workforce where people feel safe and incomers people who you're recruiting will feel this is a good organization to work in psychological safety is all about having the ability to speak up if you think something is going wrong or that there could potentially be harm from a system and that has been wiped out in the last 3 years you know, with the censorship of people who have genuinely spoken up against things that they have seen. Um, so it's that is the first two. And then and then you've got a learning system. And I would like to point out that, in my view, the learning systems that are present, certainly in my experience in the DHB where I've worked, are just not even there. Um, so I heard a, a lecture when I first got here in 2016 from one of my colleagues about clinical audit. Now, I'm not saying that clinical audit is you know, not needed. It is needed, especially when you're benchmarking against national standards. But what we really want is an improvement culture within organizations. You have to, when you come in as a new person, you want to you want to obviously get bedded in and understand your department, but you also want to contribute. You want to improve things. You see things going wrong for people. You see the wait times. You want to be able to change the system to help the patient. And in my experience, that is utterly impossible okay. in the DHB system. Paul, can I just make a comment about uh, you know, like when if we look at pre-COVID. We, most of the country um, thought we were going through a transitional sort of period, you know, we were going to transform the society and how we're doing stuff. Everyone mm. was hopeful with this new Labour government and the way things were going. There was a lot of positivity about it all. What we ended up with, unfortunately, was an autocratic system, uh, which was quite at right angles to what people's expectation was. And you could say that that is because of the, the situation changed, and it did because with Boris around. But there wasn't the that they failed to bring people with them on the journey, and particularly when you've got a transformational type government, you really would expect them to. And I think 
that has undermined the whole concept. But like many parts of the world, after an autocratic system, people rebel against being told what to do. And so this is a greater social, psychosocial, sociological, political sort of conversation than, than just health. But yeah. I think when you stand back and look at it, you know, it, it is sad because I think people were really looking forward to, trans, you know, that transformational change and what they got was nothing like it. Uh, and I think this is part of what we've seen the pushback for now. It's not just the failure to deliver, but the failure to actually follow through on a, a system that people would have accepted, even if they didn't end up where they if we ended up in the same spot, it was a failure to engage in in the process instead of just telling us what to do. That's my observation. It's a personal observation from there, you know, just standing back and looking at the structure. I don't know. The others might have other thoughts. Do you? Go, Deborah. Um, I agree with, with Frank. We, you know, this is the, the formation of the fact war, I think it's the fourth biggest change in the health system that New Zealand's seen since 1983. And we, we were expecting something different. We were expecting a new way of working that put heart back into nursing, that put heart back into medicine. But unfortunately, my personal opinion is that um, whilst I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, there are some good things in the health system. We do have the potential to have the best health system in the world in New Zealand. The, the clinicians' hearts are there people are motivated to care for others. You don't become a doctor or a nurse for um, for making money or to for, for any old, you know, any personal agenda. It's to care for others. But as the system is is at the moment and the inequities that are abounding and the poor stats that we see in the report and the gaslighting and the walkism that's creeping in, you know, this we need this government, this new government, to ask some questions. And the question would be, what are we doing wrong? What needs to change? Do we need to start looking at other models that incorporate some of the things we've talked about today? So, you know, making it free at point of contact, dental care, ambulance, primary health care, all those things are all really important if we're going to reduce inequity down the line and prevent people having to see Frank and, you know, having cancers and things removed. So we, we do need, it's almost like we need a full overhaul of the health ecosystem. And the, that, yep. sorry. No, 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 you, you finished, but I've got something that I want to ask. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think in, in terms from a, a whole system perspective, you know, if we have that full overhaul, we're going to address some of the inequity gaps that stop us from being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. You know, and, and again, that, from a, um, a nursing union perspective, we do know that um, happy patients, happy nurses means happy patients. <laughs> so, you know, we need to address, like Leah said, some of the, culture um, around, I mean, just as a matter of interest, did you know that New Zealand is the second worst country in the developed world for bullying? Teaching and education is the first one, but nursing is the second worst profession for bullying. And again, it's- Can I ask you how that happens? Because that's a caring vocation (laughs) or area to work in. And you think that the people who- lauded over that workforce need to keep in mind that that they need that feeling to to be there how come it's not it's 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 exactly those words that you just used paul it's that the people that lord it over 
you know, and that is it's this hierarchical so system. So it's the manager that, managerial class, is it? It's the hierarchical system that has historically existed in nursing and to some extent in medicine, you know, where you're um, dependent on your manager or your team leader to sign off your competencies. And um, you've got to kind of tell the party line, otherwise you get a right. bad report, those kind of things. But, you know, this is why when, when we look at nursing, when I look at nursing, it's my absolute privilege to be a nurse of 40 years. I'm a servant. I want to serve. I want to help people on their healing journey. I don't have an alternate agenda. But what we have seen and what Frank referred to is that, you know, under particular governments, there were agendas, there were control. People were unable to speak freely and, and academic privilege and freedom has been challenged. And, you know, so, so that's where the trust has gone, um, you know, which in turn people don't trust the workforce. And if there's bullying and if there's violence, it, it lends itself to an unhappy workforce and unhappy patients and unhappy health outcomes, which is the inequity we keep referring to. We'd probably need a, quite a few more hours to go through everything that's specifically wrong, and we don't have that time. So um, let's be positive now, okay? You know, we're the the plane's speeding towards the ground. Pull up, pull up. So we've got time to pull up. So what do we have to to do? And I'll mention a couple of things because one thing I've learned since being here, talking to a lot of doctors, functional medicine people, something I knew nothing about till recently, it seems that there are ways at, at the primary level of heading off type 2 diabetes. It's not rocket science. It can be done. Also high blood pressure, heart problems, just through diet. Vitamin D seems to be a big deal. Um, as we saw through COVID, there was no talk of getting healthy. It was all about being a complete helpless mess, and you can turn up at A&E if, if you really couldn't breathe anymore. So there was no middle ground. There was nothing. There was no empowering people with... Um, you know, with with messages that could be preventative. So, do we have to, uh, if we're trying to work out how to how to get things right or the best they could be, do we have to start thinking about two separate systems, a a health system being the preventative part, and the treatment system being the other part, and not think of everything as just a health system anymore? Would that be a start, Frank? I think that um, this has already uh, been a big issue. Uh, uh, you know, like the health department or the Ministry of Health has, has taken this on board with all their sort of uh, within their sector. The, the, the difficulty is, is that the big changes for society um, are done at that social at that level you're talking about. The, the problem is, is that, that 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 resource required for that takes it away from. Dealing with people that need to be treated reasonably urgently. Uh, there's not an unlimited the pie is only so big. So how much do you give to one person? Well, no, the pie could be bigger. Let, well, I mean, if not, it's a priority, the, look, you know, we don't have to buy five, um, you know, four hundred million dollars aircraft. We could we could put it in the health if we wanted to, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking. I'm just talking about the reality as opposed right. to the, um, <laughs> the, the idealized world. The, the pie is not. You're not going to be. Able, we don't have enough money to go and buy another pie. We'll get a bigger pie. We're, we're, yeah, okay. we're stuck with the pie we've got at the moment. I think one of the key issues is about that, that comes, if you want to improve things, is about how we organise care. And I'll just give you an example of that. Um, 
you know, one, one thing is that the ministry should be focused on this unmet need thing. It would be really critical. Another thing is about cancer care. Overseas, most of the Western world moved to comprehensive cancer centres where there's pathways established and you get that volume thing. You know, why is a Toyota made cheaper than someone that, than a Land Rover? Because they don't make many Land Rovers, they make lots of Toyotas. Yep. It, it's about trying to get volume through us uh, and get systems and processes and comprehensive cancer care does that. Will this government do that? Not so far. Has it been suggested? Repeatedly. Um, the, the whole sort of trying to get systems in place which allows for uh, more more appropriate pathways. It, it, there's huge resources you know, when we've got limited resources that's a critical aspect about going, moving forward on this. So creating centres of excellence, is that how you would uh, no, with the scale production, basically. More than, it's more than that. It's about the whole development of pathways and infrastructure. They don't have to be excellent. They just have to be adequate. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, I get excellent it. will be bonus. <laughs> yeah, but but some, somewhere where you can do at scale. Yeah, and you can retain people. The difficulty, say if you're an oncologist and you go to a place where there's two other oncologists, you're going to get overworked. If you're in a place with 20 other oncologists providing care for a bigger region, you've got infrastructural support. Right. Okay. Um, Lee, maybe you want to talk to, um, I, I guess, the ideal, if you had the levers and you could pull the levers and and kind of make it work the way you would like to see it working, what, what would those levers be, do you think? Um, I would I would want, for start off, the, um, the areas of integrative medicine and functional medicine to be recognised. Because they're not really, are they? Well, um, I can tell you now, functional medicine, the medical council have dismissed functional medicine as something that they will, they they, they don't recognise it. Why? So though, um, because I suppose it's the new kid on the block in terms of the name. Uh, a lot of people have no clue what functional medicine is. Um, they don't realise that it's root cause medicine. It's trying to work out why people have the conditions that they have, not what it is and let's just, you know, treat it. It's trying to work out why those started in the first place and treating that. Um, they don't, they don't, it's just, um, yeah, it's just too, too, it's at the leading edge, if you like, of, of literature and medicine. It's systems biology. It's applying new types of testing that, you know, hasn't been um, sort of conventionally available and, um, answering the questions about um, that person's phenotype, as we call it, you know, what, what is going on genetically, environmentally, um, you know, inflammation, nutritionally, and, you know, all, all the different holistic areas and psychologically as well. So it's trying to, it's trying to um, sort of address the root cause basically, but isn't that the that's whole not point? how medicine, medicine's trained through, yeah. not through, trying to establish root cause it's trying to establish a name and it's naming it taming it or naming taming blaming or the other way around um and that's not a um a system that you know a system that's the system that medical councils used to um and it's it's very regulated around that and so if you you're a square peg in a round hole they don't want to know they just but surely in the end it's what works is all that matters yeah, and if they go, say, for instance, functional medicine, which is obviously my my wheelhouse, um, 
if they go to the Cleveland Clinic and there's an entirely separate parallel system within functional medicine and they're, they're doing all the RCTs of comparing the different methodologies of sorting people out with all manner of complex health problems and showing quite clearly that there's a huge difference. Um, so it's, you know, in, in, in the towards functional medicine being very beneficial. So um, I think it's it's up to us as doctors um, who have that interest to lobby the medical council and say, you know, this is, you know, this is a, it is a, is a, a part of medicine and, and you need to take note of it, you know, um, because it gets good results. Okay. And, and Deborah, from your view, um, to make the difference that we, and we're only just scratching the surface, I get that, but um, to make the difference from, from where you stay, see things, your experience, um, what needs to happen? Going to be somewhat radical and probably controversial in, in my response to, to this question, Paul. Um, I think we all agree that we need and we deserve, New Zealanders deserve a health system that's committed to preserving opportunities for everybody, including the workforce. Um, but what we have seen historically is that over the last four um, occasions or four different health service models, they are actually essentially to, in some part profit models such as the 1993 Crown Health Enterprise. Now, I really believe that we need to return to a pure model. That That's takes, right. They were going to charge us $50. They did. But, but we want <laughs> a pure model that takes out all wow. the layers and yeah. gives full governance and control of budgets and oversight back to the ward sister, back to clinicians in local hospitals, managing local issues for local communities, and the local community involved. Now, the fact war is trying to work in some regards towards doing this, but because it wants to retain overall ownership on a national perspective, it is never going to reach this pureness of this concept. But, you know, this concept of care closer to home, if we're really going to do that, and the carers that are providing that care closer to home need to be the ones that's got um, the budget, the wherewithal and the actual overall say on what happens. We just need to, I mean, I know that the Tifatuara change has removed some bureaucracy, but at the same time, it's also introduced new forms of bureaucracy and walkism and um, under international treaties and World Health Organization, UN, etc. It's brought in a lot more layers. We need to ditch all that and we need to start taking responsibility for local health in local communities. And I know we've got the skills. Look at these wonderful doctors with us today. We've got the skills, we've got the clinicians, we've got the expertise. We just need to start believing and trusting our health workforce to take more responsibility. I believe we can do. And does there need to be far more of an emphasis on getting the management layer right? So they kind of know how to behave properly in the job. Is that think, something? Yeah, one, if I could just jump in quickly, I think one of the things is that we train doctors and nurses, but they're doctors and nurses, you know, they're not always understanding from a governance perspective and certainly not always managers or able to oversee projects. That is something that comes it's extra to your training as a doctor or as a nurse. It's not a natural skill that comes to people. And that is where we've fallen down here, that you know people are put into positions where they actually don't understand how, first of all, to interact with other people and to deal with the issues. So I think 
that's another part of the layers that we need to start addressing. Because you don't want people who think if only if it wasn't for the patients, everything would be okay. You don't want those sort of people in there, do you? Okay, we're coming up against an hour of this um, this panel, this chat, and I want to go around our panelists for kind of summing up. So, Professor Frank Frizzell, any comments to make after um, what we've been talking about so far? Yeah, look, Paul, uh, thank you very much for hosting this because I think it's important that it's talked about um, and to the other panellists because I think it's important that, that we get different views on, on the issues I, I think going trying to move this forward, the, the biggest issue will be actually come out of that funny building in Wellington, um, and it's about leadership. Um, and we really do need uh, good leadership, and that's and not the sort that's autocratic, um, sort that that actually involves the people um, that are delivering it involved with the process. Uh, I, I I do fear that politicians. Um, a bit out of touch with reality, um, and they, particularly the health workforce and, and the issues around that and the ability to get access to patients. You know, it, it's, it's, I have easy access given who what I do, and it, I couldn't get in to see a GP within a month. Um, and it is ridiculously difficult. Uh, and I'm disappointed that the, at what we can provide in New Zealand at the present time, and I shouldn't be. I've spent a lifetime working in the system trying to make it better, and it's worse off than when I started. Dr Lee Willoughby. Um, I think I'll come back to my first point, which I made, is that, that um, I know it'll, it'll be hard, um, and some people would regard it as blue-sky thinking, is we really need to come back to... Uh, focusing on the patient, um, not about the system and the processes. And I mean, obviously, outcomes are really important to patients. We need to go. We need to go back and ask the question: What is going to benefit the patient the most? And you know, if that means, um, you know, you if you work in the improvement space, it's telling stories. It's enabling staff to understand what happened for that patient in that particular circumstance it's asking the question what um yeah what is what is most important what's most of value and it may not be what you think um and we that's why this needs a whole new jig up it needs to be completely changed around because in my view i think it's very much um the processes that go on in healthcare are very much about the system and not about who's actually accessing the system and safety would improve, reward for staff would improve. There, there'd just be a multi-layered um, sort of benefit from doing that. And yeah, I've seen it, I've worked it in a highly regarded teaching hospital where improvement science was the mantra and we were safe, we were clean and we were personal. And it ran through every single thing that we did um, for every single patient, I know it's hard to believe, but but you know it, it really did. Everyone was really trying to to, to live up to that standard. Um, so right. that's 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 all I can come you know suggest really. Yeah. And Deb Cunliffe to finish off. Yeah, I mean today we've we've, we've taken a very cl- um, clinician based focus as doctors and nurses, but, you know, I would like to encourage the New Zealand public and and the listeners to start taking responsibility for what's happening around us, for the fact that there is ongoing um, inequity waiting 
bliss, can't get in to see the doctor, surgeon, whatever. And, you know, to start writing to their local MPs, to start campaigning, this is a public health system that we've been referring to Where we pay our taxes. Exactly. And as such, the public have got the right to take ownership and to start making demands and to start requesting the changes. I think I, I will, I mean, I come back to the Tifakawara report again. Obviously, the report after the first year under the Labour government. It's going to be interesting to see what changes the coalition government into a number of areas across health. So um, we're going to be watching and waiting with interest. But in the meantime, we need to start lobbying. Like Lee says, the things about functional medicine or like Frank says, the fact that somebody with what turns out to be benign cancer still can't get a specialist appointment, get that, the reassurance they need. People need to start taking these issues up with local clinicians, uh, sorry, with, you know, with the local MPs and, and demanding answers because until we get some forward movement, things are not going to change. And for clinicians, I think clinicians start, we need to start um, encouraging clinicians to speak out. And I know we've had the recent um, whistleblower um, with Barry Young, but, you know, Barry hasn't been protected as a whistleblower, but I hope that doesn't put off other people from coming forward with other issues around what we've seen in the health service. Let's start being honest and real what we've seen and what is actually happening. We've lost a government that tried to shut down conditions. Now let's hope this new government allows us to speak and allows us to represent some of the issues that we are seeing around us. Okay, Deborah Cunliffe, President of the Nurses Professional Association of New Zealand. Thank you. Dr. Lee Willoughby, thank you so much for coming in as well. And Professor Frank Frizzell, thank you, Frank, for being part of this. So hopefully it gets people thinking, it starts conversations, ideas come to mind. That's what it's all about. So thanks, uh, guys, for coming on our second health panel. Let's see what happens, if any, if anything. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.